Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, our guest is Chip Walker, co-author of Activate Brand Purpose. And this was a fabulous book. And I think you're really going to enjoy the insights that Chip provides. So before we get started, Chip, uh, to talk about your book, could you talk about your professional history? Sure, sure. And first of all, thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, my professional background is really uh, sort of from the marketing and advertising world for many years, uh, particularly on the agency side. I've, I've worked a little bit client side, but for the most part, I've worked at sort of some of the major big uh, creative agencies, brand agencies like um, uh, YNR, BBDO, Wonderman, the, the list goes on. So I've been doing, you can tell by my gray hair, I've been doing this for a little while. Um, and um, uh, on the strategic side. Um, so I currently have the strategic function at an agency called Strawberry Frog, which is a sort of, uh, we call ourselves a movement marketing firm, but um, you know, uh, clients come to us for sort of brand and uh, creative uh, work. Uh, major clients of ours include uh, Prudential, we're, the, we're their main agency, um, Truist, which is a major bank, it used to be called SunTrust, um, Northwell Health, which is the largest employer here in New York State, and you know the list can go on and on. So we we work with major companies. Anyway, Scott Goodson, uh, the founder of Strawberry and Frog, and I have worked together since about 2007, um, and we sort of developed this idea of sort of activating purpose and movement marketing um, at, at Strawberry Frog, and that's kind of where uh, our book came from. So hopefully well, that gives you a little bit of a background on me. Yeah, and you guys have got great clients have built really a great firm. And I always like the creative names that people come up with their firms. Uh, my, mine is Kramer Communications. No creativity whatsoever there. So that probably has to worry somebody. But yours is really <laughs> creative. Strawberry Frog. It's memorable. Yeah. So how'd you come up with that name? Yeah, uh, so the, the strawberry frog is a real frog. Uh, it's from the Amazon. Uh, it is small and nimble, but you have to be careful because it is also poisonous. So, uh, you know, you got you got to watch out for it. But, uh, you know, we developed this lore a long time ago and, and the way that we talk about strawberry frog in that um, we, we have this whole uh, sort of metaphor and story that we call frog versus dinosaur. And dinosaur represents uh, kind of the old, um, you know, gigantic, antic um, agency branding partner that you can do business with that is like slow and expensive. We tend to be the nimble strawberry frog who can take huge leaps uh, and do so in a very, very agile and nimble way. So that's kind of the, the reason that we went with a name like strawberry frog. Do you pick a name like that? Uh, so you have to explain that reason. You know, people have got to be asking, every client must be asking why you pick that particular name. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, people ask and then they just laugh and then they kind of go with it. And the interesting thing is that um, 
uh, I think it often makes people think that you have incredible digital and social chops, whether you actually do or not, because it just sounds like you do, right? We actually happen to, but, um, you know, often uh, these, these kind of newer agencies are called like red something or so strawberry frog, I I think, um, kind of gives people that, uh, that, that sense about us as well. So why did you, why did you co-author this book and what do you want we, readers to walk away from? Yeah. After so, reading it. Yeah. So, you know, Scott and I had been working with this idea of movement marketing for a number of years, uh, all through, you know, the early 2000s going up into 2010s post-recession. And uh, it was a very popular idea. And I'll, I'll talk more about movement thinking and why we think it's an important idea. But uh, what we noticed was that um, I think starting probably 2017, 18, we found that a lot of very senior folks within large organizations in particular, also some smaller organizations, um, CEOs, CMOs, uh, CHROs, um, et cetera, were coming to us about this notion of higher purpose. And I guess it's no secret, everybody knows that that's become a huge topic of discussion in the past two or three years. But what people were coming to us to talk about was in particular, you know, we've been talking about purpose within our company, we've developed a purpose, maybe we've developed more than one purpose, you know, uh, we did one six months ago, and then we did another one two months ago. Um, And the big problem that, folks were complaining about was that we've done this and now we're not really sure what to do with it. Um, you know, we, we've announced it to our employees. We've got a big plaque on the wall. It's in the about section of our website, but that seems to be it. Six months have passed and now nothing has changed. Can you guys help us? Uh, and it started to become really clear that just knowing what your purpose is uh, wasn't really even the hardest thing, although it's it's an important thing. The, the really challenging thing seemed to be, how do you do something with purpose? And that's really kind of um, where the title of our book came from. It's called Activate Brand Purpose, uh, Harnessing the Power of Movements to Transform Your Company. I think what Scott and I had realized is that this whole theory around movement marketing, you know, and movement marketing uh, as we've uh, developed it, and as I said, I'll talk a lot more about it, but it basically uses the principles behind successful societal movements to figure out how to galvanize people towards change. I think we realized that uh, our, our movement philosophy was the perfect way to activate purpose because people can't join a purpose, but they can join a movement inspired by a purpose. And it, it became clear to us that we, you know, you know, we have a pretty good idea for a really simple proven way to activate your purpose in the marketplace. And um, that's kind of why we decided to write, uh, to write the book. Uh, I think in terms of what we would want people to walk away with, it's basically just what I got through saying, that there's a proven sort of systematic way to activate your purpose, and that's with movement thinking. Well, I think the the book is something you can't put down in one of those books that you got to kind of read twice to get everything out of it because you give so many great examples. But what's the biggest misconception about marketing? Uh, the biggest misconception uh, about marketing, I think that the, the de facto assumption by a lot of people that marketing is really just about manipulating people. And, and I'm not here to say that in the past that more marketing hasn't been used to do that ever. But I think that the fact that it, or the, the, the notion that, that that is really its only purpose 
um, is really misguided because increasingly with everyone's access to, in, to you know, information, it's really much harder to implement people, if not impossible. And I think we've discovered that marketing actually has a much higher calling uh, to, to be done in the world. How has marketing changed since you joined the profession pre even uh, using the internet and computers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd say, you know, I think when I started in the business, I mean, really kind of in the nineties, um, you really had a mind share, what I call a mind share model, where basically what we were trying to do for any brand was to kind of get inside people's brain and own real estate inside their brain by messaging them often through TV ads. So we were trying to buy space in your head to stand for something you know, Tide equals clean or gain detergent equals smells uh, good. Um, and, and that was kind of the model. And I think today that's increasingly just impossible to do. Nobody can afford it unless you're, you know, you've got a, a, a billion dollar ad budget uh, and, and people are just a lot more immune to that kind of thing. So I feel like the way that marketing has changed is that today in marketing, we're in a world where we actually need to activate people rather than just message them and activate them around something they already care about, something important to them, um, which I think has made marketing become hopefully a lot more meaningful to people as opposed to feeling like they're being manipulated. And you wrote, you coined a new marketing phrase called movement thinking. What yes. is that? And please explain the building blocks you mentioned and who's successful at using it. Yeah, well, uh, so movement thinking, um, It uh, I mentioned uh, just a minute ago that movement thinking uses the principles behind successful societal movements. I mean, think about the women's movement or the civil rights movement or Black Lives Matter. You know, the, the successful societal movements uh, have gotten people to engage and participate because they agree with what the organizers um, are trying to do. Uh, and that's kind of what we're trying to do with brands. We're trying to get folks to participate and engage with the brand because they feel like they and the brand are on the same side and trying to accomplish the same thing. Um, and uh, maybe uh, giving an example will, will help. So there's sort of four pieces of movement thinking um, that we, um, we, we sort of bring to the table. Movements, every movement out there, you know, as I said, from the women's movement to the, the um, uh, gay rights movement, just think of your, your uh, a movement you're familiar with. Every movement starts with some sort of a dissatisfaction. Uh, some sort of a grouse, uh, a, a wrong in the world that the organizers of the movement think needs to be made right. There's usually some sort of a change that the movement wants to see in the world. Uh, based on that change, there's usually some sort of shared enemy that the movement and the participants in the movement have out in the world. And then some sort of a stand that the movement takes to overcome that enemy and achieve the change they want to see out in the world. And those are basically the pieces of movement thinking. So maybe I'll give you an example of how we've applied movement thinking for a brand. So one of the early movements that we created for a brand was for the smart car which Strawberry Frog launched on the, the uh, worked on the launch of. It was a joint venture between Swatch and Mercedes here a few, few years back. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that a lot of folks on the, that are listening are familiar with Smart. It's this, uh, this really tiny, tiny compact car that's all, you know, kind of half the size of a regular car um, and uh, that you've probably seen. Uh, that I thought they were like so little, cool. 
Yeah, it looks a little bit like, you know, a cross between a roller skate and a VW bug. It's a, yeah. so, they're, so they're tiny. Um, they came to us. And of course, uh, you know, the I think the obvious way to, to market the smart car would have been to think about things like, well, you know, it's easier to park, you know, you save on gas, that kind of thing. But I think that we and the clients both saw that there was a much um, probably more emotionally engaging way to apply movement thinking um, to create a platform for the brand. So the dissatisfaction that we kind of identified for Smart was that um, a lot of people, particularly in cities, um, just felt that there was too much overconsumption and waste going on in the world, particularly in cities, you know, big, unnecessary cars and SUVs that block the road, they uh, screw up traffic, they take up too much space. So that was a dissatisfaction. The change that the brand wanted to see and the people who, who followed the brand was really to restore the urban landscape, maybe to its earlier, more pristine state before we had all this crazy, uh, wasteful SUVs, et cetera, uh, taking up uh, all our space. So the enemy that we identified was, uh, we, we, we call it uh, um, stupidly overconsuming, uh, which we shorthanded as dumb. And uh, the stand that the brand took was really for sort of smarter, more conscious consuming, which we shorthanded as smart. So the movement that we created for Smart Car was called Against Dumb. A lot of you probably have seen, it was a campaign that was kind of everywhere for a while. Um, but it took um, a stand about changing something meaningful in the world um, that this brand really had the ability to, to have an impact on. So that's just an example of how we used movement thinking to sort of shape the narrative of a brand in a way that was much more interesting than, you know, oh, you might save some money on gas and it might be easier to park. So I'm anyway, just curious. Go ahead. No, I'm just, hopefully that gives you a little bit of a flavor of how we do movement thinking. I'm just curious, how long does it take you to come up with that concept? And how many people were involved and what's involved in that? Yeah, well, um, you know, it depends a little bit on, on the client. Uh, you know, we've been working with um, the merger of a major bank. Um, so two banks, we were, we were the agency for SunTrust Bank here in the United States. Some of you may know um, very large bank. It just merged with BB&T. It's become a bank called Truist. So we've been working on the launch of that for a year and a half, and it's a very large team, but that's a ginormous institution. Uh, smaller uh, firms, we just went through this process with a company called um, uh, Afterpay. I don't know if you know it. They're a buy now, pay later um, service uh, that uh, you may have heard of. Anyway, we went through the, that kind of process in just a few weeks with, you know, a team of, you know, eight or 10 people. Uh, for something like the bank, as I said, that could take months um, just because they have so many more stakeholders and, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot more complicated. And, and what kind of people do you guys hire? Because they've they got to be really smart and intellectually interested in a lot of things to come up with the ideas that you come up with. What kind of people do you hire? Sure. Well, you know, I'd say, you know, there's there's sort of two major disciplines that do the thinking and the content work. There's folks in the strategic team, which I lead, and there's folks on the creative team, uh, which uh, Scott and a couple of our other partners lead. 
Um, so on our strategic team, we have folks who have my background, which are basically sort of in brand marketing and communication strategy. Um, I also have somebody on my team who is a sort of bona fide cultural anthropologist, uh, like like not a pretend one, but somebody who actually has a, you know, a background and a degree from, um, you know, uh, Harvard and, and has actually done real cultural anthropology. So we tend to hire folks who are very strong cultural thinkers um, and folks who, um, I, I don't know, have a, a, a knack for recognizing what's going on out in the world and being able to find out um, the relevant intersection between you know, problems in the world and issues that our, um, our, our clients' products and services actually solve. And did you come up with the name Truist or how did that name come up? We did not. No, uh, it was developed uh, by the bank with um, another company. I think it's called Interbrand that they hired uh, to come up with that name. I'm just curious. How does somebody come up with a name like Truist? It seems so unbank-like. Yeah, well, uh, so, so we, you know, we were, um, we were, Sort of part of the team that um, uh, they, they shared the name with, and uh, you know, I think some other options. And I, I, my sense is that one of the reasons that the bank um, landed on it was because it was unbank-like. They didn't necessarily want to seem like yet another, I don't know, kind of stayed in uh, traditional bank uh, that there. You know, there's so many of them out there. Sure. So let's come back to your book. Can you please explain the purpose? power index and how is that used? Sure, absolutely. So it's a purpose power index is um, something that we developed uh, separate from the book, but we talk about it in the book. So um, in 2019, um, you know, as we started really focusing in on purpose, um, Scott, my partner and I really thought, well, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to find out, you know, is purpose something that the average person even notices in a company uh, that they do business with and that they care about? Um, and if so, what are the companies that they associate with purpose and which are the ones that they don't? And we went out and looked and discovered that that, that information didn't really seem to be out there, at least in a way that was very credible to us. So uh, we partnered with um, a company at that point called the Reputation Institute. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're probably the premier company for measuring uh, reputation. I think they're now called RepTrack, but um, but a very well-known research company. Um, and um, we worked together, came up with a methodology of polling the public as to which of a large number of companies, I think we looked at over 200 uh, uh, companies in the U.S. Um, that uh, people considered as really following uh, uh, a higher purpose. And by that, we just mean a higher a purpose that's uh, bigger than making money. Uh, and so uh, in, uh, I think it was late 2019, we did the first wave of the study. Um, and, uh, and we wrote about those results in the book. Uh, and, and interestingly, we uh, did another wave in early 2021. So, so the first wave was right before COVID. And the second wave was kind of at the later stages of COVID. Um, and so, so we've done two waves of it with about 10,000 people in the United States. Uh, as I said, over 200 brands. Uh, and we've really identified a, which, which kind of companies are getting credit for being purposeful. 
Uh, and the other reason that we did the study was we, we kind of wanted to know, well, well, what is it about those companies that makes them come across as purposeful? So it was to learn those two things. Um, and we've had a, we had a summit uh, over the summer. If any of you guys that are listening are interesting, but are interested in hearing more about it, we had uh, several speakers from companies that were high in the Purpose Power Index. These were companies like um, REI, UPS, uh, seventh generation, um, uh, wide range of companies um, uh, that that spoke and talked to us and answered some questions about what it is they do to be perceived as purposeful. Anyway, I can point you towards where that information exists if anybody wants to know more about it. So if you actually send me the link, I'll make sure that everybody gets it. Okay, I can do yeah, that. Yeah, just send it as an email because I send everybody a copy of this show and yeah. so they can wa watch it again later. Uh, we have okay, a question from... We have a question from the audience. I believe sophisticated marketing can incorporate branding for newly introduced product and company. Do you consider it compulsory to have a separate and apart approach to branding for marketing once a company grows large enough? Um, I'm just, I'm, can, you, can you just paraphrase that again? I'm just not 100% not sure I followed that. So they want to know, do you consider it compulsory to have a separate and apart approach to branding for marketing once a company uh, grows large enough? So like, you know, do, what, how, do you do marketing in the beginning and you don't necessarily have a brand because you're not really known as a specific brand yet? And okay. then... Yeah, yeah. I, okay, I understand now. Sorry, sorry. A little, little, uh, little slow in the uptake today. Um, yeah, well, we're dealing this uh, uh, with this right now. Uh, you know, as I said, we're launching, we're helping launch the the truest brand, uh, but we've uh, worked on other new to the world brands, and, and and obviously, the the most important things right when you're launching are that people know what your brand even is and and has some sense of what category it's in. Um, as, so that uh, yeah, you know, people don't consider or purchase brands that they are not aware of. So often the most important thing out of the gate is just doing the basics to get uh, blocking and tackling to get your brand known and at least just broadly even understood in, in, in its competitive context. So yeah, those kinds of activities are often very different. And also, you know, obviously, you know, the kind of uh, ways that you interact with people are often different. You're going for, uh, you know, awareness and consideration kinds of interactions. So if you're uh, a mass consumer brand, you know, you're probably in mass media. Uh, if you're a B2B brand, you're doing things that reach, you know, as much of your audience as you can. Obviously, once you're much better known and a more mature brand, uh, that kind of thing changes. If you're already known, you might be less that doing things to become known and more perhaps uh, things, for example, to shift perception. If one of your competitors uh, is doing something that you want to say stand against. So and I think the short answer is yes, those two things can be very different from you know being a, an early stage to being a mature brand. Marketing often is quite different. Another question from the audience. Would you speak to the role of millennials play in helping along the role of movement thinking? Because they engage with companies that have a mission and at a higher purpose and seek to participate in the world by solving problems. Is it safe to assume that the intersection of millennial values and movement thinking is perfectly timed to be a win-win? Yes, I would. I mean, I, I really think, you know, I mentioned earlier that, um, 
you know, but Scott and I had done a lot of early work trying to pioneer movement thinking, but that it's really taken off in, I'd say, you know, 2010, 12, 14, 15, and beyond. It's just built every year. And I think one of the reasons to the, to the point that the questioner raised is that what we're seeing now is that the people who are starting to be in charge of things are now millennials. And it's not that either Gen X or boomers don't care about anything like that. It's just that we came up in a different era. I think with millennials, there's the expectation that a company has an obligation not simply to shareholders, but to um, employees and with and, and to stakeholders generally. And so I think they're being more demanding uh, and asking a lot harder questions about their employers and about the companies they do business with as to, you know, what are you trying to do that, that you know, as we've been talking about, is bigger than making money? Yeah, it's funny you should say that because I've heard venture capitalists in Silicon Valley say that um, entrepreneurs that always work 12 days, you know, 24 hours a day to get their venture. And now they've been hearing pushback from entrepreneurs that they're investing in that's saying, we're not going to do that. We're going to tell our people no more than 10 hours in a day. We don't want to work in more than five, maybe six days in a week. They've got to take vacation and we're going to make them take vacation. And to the older venture yeah. capitalists, it's like, wait a minute, they don't get vacation until we start making money. So if right. they've got to work 100 hours a week and, and these younger people, my daughter's one of them. They keep talking about quality of life when she looks at, she has a global marketing business and she just looks at how important it is to have quality of life. And she wants brands that meet that same standard. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's only gotten more intensified that that, that point of view since the pandemic. I, ne I never think about those things. And maybe because I'm older at 60, I'm more jaded. I don't think that, <laughs> you know, to me, it's just another marketing twist. But um, people want to see these folks uh, walk the talk. Another audience question. Can you please share a few tips on optimizing word of mouth marketing? Optimizing word of mouth marketing. Yeah, um, I'd say uh, I think the most important thing is to um, be involved in an idea with your marketing that is something that people are interested in talking about, which I know may sound glib, but but I, I have to say when, when I have clients who are like, why are we going viral? And then you find out that they're talking about arcane aspects of their tennis shoe that very few people, uh, it might make them different from the competition, but that very few people think about, there, there's no wonder no one's talking about it. It's just not that interesting to them. So I think that the big rule is like, what is it that makes you talk worthy? Why is there a message that is worth spreading uh, about your brand? And I think if you if you look at, you know, unfortunately, too too many uh, companies, they they just don't have that. And and I think that's the big limiter, you know, first and foremost to keep people from um, from from using word of mouth and and talking about you. No, no question about that. And. And great restaurants, right, have word of mouth where they never market uh, or have to advertise. I always think like it's the mediocre stuff like TGIF Fridays. And I hope I'm not talking about any of your clients, but, you know, these like national chains, they have always have to keep marketing. But the great small uh, or or well-known local restaurant, they don't have to do any advertising whatsoever. There's lots of people who build great brands that don't require any advertising. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
You mentioned some case studies and company examples of companies that have authentic purpose. Could you please talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, you know, I'll talk about one that's a client, just because it's an example I've used before that may be a little surprising, but I think it's also easy to get. And then maybe I'll talk about a, a couple who are not our clients. Um, so authentic purpose. So um, I'll use the example, uh, I've mentioned it already, of SunTrust Bank, who we've worked with since, um, I don't know, 2000, I think 14 or 15. It's the, the bank that I mentioned earlier has since just recently merged and became uh, Truist. But we have uh, started working with um, SunTrust um, uh, coming out of the last Great Recession. So as I said, 2014, 15, um, and um, the bank had... Um, the reason I like to give this example is I think some people um, associating authentic purpose with a bank just seems crazy to a lot of people and impossible, but I, I think it's an instance where we were able to do it. So Truist had come up with, uh, I'm sorry, SunTrust had come up with this um, purpose. It was called Lighting the Way to Financial Well-Being, you know, which sounds great, but I think one of the issues with uh, purpose in general is that while inspiring, sometimes it can be lofty to the point that, you know, as I've said earlier, it's hard to know exactly what you do with it. And I think that that may be some of they were running into. They're wanting to activate that that purpose of lighting away the financial well-being. So we came up with this um, insight that uh, despite the fact that um, we were supposedly coming out of the recession in 2015, 16, around there, that really a majority of people still felt very, very, very financially vulnerable. Uh, there was a lot, lot of financial anxiety around there. And um, that that was an enemy that people were really looking for a financial institution to help them with, but that really none really were. So we came up with this idea that the, the SunTrust would stand against financial stress and for helping people become financially confident, um, which is kind of a simple mission coming out of that, that uh, it, it was kind of a movement idea that we developed coming off that purpose of lighting the way to financial well-being. But it gave lighting the way to financial well-being um, sort of a greater specificity so that when you are a bank employee and you're like, why am I getting up every day? It's to help people get out of financial stress and start being more financially confident. And all of a sudden, that purpose started to be a lot more actionable. All of a sudden, you started to know what kind of programs you wanted to create, what kind of advice you wanted to give people. Um, and um, so as an example, uh, we created this movement uh, around financial confidence. It was called On Up, which stands for Onwards and Upwards. But it, you know, again, it was all about making America more financially confident. And uh, uh, it was incredibly successful. Uh, I think we ended up uh, in the last count, we had 6 million people who joined the movement uh, and oh. it made a huge difference, not only in um, just the engagement of employees and employees feeling like what they did was meaningful, but it actually, it really helped drive um, account signups. Uh, it drives loyalty with customers. Uh, so that's just an example of a company, I think, living purpose authentically. And I think it's really important that that the movement and the purpose were really very, very tied to what they do as a bank. It wasn't just some, let's go out and give to charity. So I think that's an example to me of a company developing and living a purpose in an authentic way. Um, another one that's a little controversial, but I, I do think it's a good example is uh, Patagonia. 
you guys have probably heard about them and you know they're kind oh, sure. of militant militant about the environment and they you know they say uh controversial things um like they had a campaign uh, a political campaign called vote the assholes out and it was <laughs> all of, all about um trying to get people to support candidates who were helping protect the environment well the reason i feel like they they do purpose authentically is that the whole environmental angle really has a lot to do with their underlying business you can understand why the environment is important to them as an outdoor company that's number one but number two they're very, very transparent about their own um, performance on the environment. And they're very upfront that they're not where they need to be. You know, they have a famous ad that you guys may have seen called Don't Buy This Jacket. Mm-hmm. It was basically showing one of their jackets and where it was made in sustainable ways and where it was not. Uh, and I think it's just made them be very credible about uh, that. Their purpose is uh, something to the effect of that like, we're here to save our home planet. Um, and, um, it, it just, I, I feel like they are, whether you like them or not, you have to admit that they are living their purpose in a very authentic way. A question from the audience in today's ADD world, people looking at a number of reviews, uh, without actually reading the reviews and the companies with a budget can pay for fake reviews. What marketing advice do you have for small companies to generate movements? Oh, um, yeah, so that's, that's a tricky one. Um, so, so in terms of the whole review thing, um, you know, I, 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 I very much sympathize with the whole, uh, it's funny because we worked with a, um, a mattress comp brand that I will shall go unnamed. And that, that whole practice about fake reviews in the world of mattresses is apparently rampant. So people listen to them, uh, re- read the reviews incessantly. In fact, there are fake sites up about mattress reviews and um, it's all pay for play. Uh, and so it's a, just kind of an incessant problem. So I think my advice, particularly for a smaller company, let's say let you were a smaller company in, in the mattress uh, arena. I, I I think uh, my advice would be um, to go in a different direction than relying on um, word of mouth and reviews. You know, we were talking earlier about having an idea to lean into um, that was uh, people would engage with because it was interesting to them and that they would, you know, want, want to talk about to other people because they cared about it. I feel like that's got to be the key today, because uh, otherwise there's so much noise in reviews or um, or, 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 or other things that if you don't have an idea that people care about fundamentally to start out with, you're going to be subject to that that kind of noise. Um, another question from the audience: Would you say that Bomba Socks and Warby Parker also do purpose authentically, and will that make them more sustainable? Yeah, it's funny because we use the Bombus examples um, example in our book, um, and, um, and and again, there neither Bombus or, or or Warby Parker are clients that uh, I've worked with personally, so I only know about them third hand. I will say, based on what I know, I do consider them purpose oriented companies or, or companies that at least are are trying to 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 be so and to operate that way. And I'm sorry, what was the second half of the question? Uh, the second question, uh, will that make them more sustainable? You know, I I think so for 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 both of them, just because both of them are, are operating in uh, crowded categories. 
And I think the fact that they are um, purposeful and both trying to spark movements, it, it uh, has set them apart uh, and made them a lot different from their traditional competitors. Um, and even though others have come in since then, I think because they were in there early, um, I think both of them have staying power. Yeah, I do too. And they're smart people uh, with good marketing uh, sense about how they go about approaching the market. Uh, how do you get authentic? How do you get authentically people behind a movement? You know, like it's it's real. Yeah. So. Um... Well, you know, a movement is really sort of purpose activated. So I think you've got to think about the purpose that you're activating first. And so I think there's sort of four aspects to um, a purpose that you can easily and authentically um, activate that we think about. So first and foremost is clarity. Uh, and I think a lot of times we don't think about it, but uh, if people don't really understand what your company's purpose is about, um, it's sort of game over. And a lot of times people don't have clarity. Um, uh, another one is, is that the purpose kind of at the right altitude. So some purposes are all the way up in changing the world and you know saving our home planet. Some are at a lower altitude. Um, you know, Google's just trying to organize the world's information. Both are valid and you gotta kind of know the right altitude for both you and the, the customer base that you're dealing with. The other big thing is uh, action. Can people actually see you acting upon your purpose? Uh, and I think that's a way that you get them behind your movement. And the last one I call sort of story. Uh, do they see your company as telling a complete story with your movement behind your purpose? So in other words, um, Nike, for example, I think has been criticized where they've come out and really wanted to support racial equality, which I think everyone agrees is, you know, an admirable thing. They've had the advertising they do with Colin Kaepernick, yet some people have criticized them for their hiring practices. You know, you, you know, you, you don't really necessarily support racial equality, Nike, in some of the hires you make. Um, and other people have pointed out, well, you know what, you guys haven't paid income tax in 10 years. How is that really being purposeful? So telling a more complete story or at least knowing where your outages is, are is pretty important if you kind of, uh, to, to your question, want to kind of authentically get people behind a movement. Yeah, I mean, you, you addressed that in the book about uh, Nike and maybe they're not as authentic. You know, maybe it's, uh, they're purposeful in trying to co-opt uh, what Colin Kopernick was trying to accomplish as, but they're not walking the talk, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm always hesitant to call them out because um, I do feel like they're doing some things that are important. And I guess the message I don't want to put out is that you have to be perfect as a company before you can try to do any kind of social activism. Because if that were true, then no one would ever do anything. But having said that, I do think that they're, Practically, sometimes when companies just are being dumb about not looking, um, not looking at some of the outages they may have before they go on the air with TV and you know make a big deal about a social issue. You were, as we were talking before about authentic, you know, being authentically, authentically good at getting people behind things. Just kind of like we saw the Black Lives Matter, where there are marches throughout the not just this country but throughout the world. Mm -hmm. Who's good at this in, from a business standpoint? And how do you measure whether 
you doing this actually creates sales. You know, that at the end of the day, the board and, and stockholders are looking for return on investment. You know, you can say all the good things you want, but who's good at this and converting it into money? Well, uh, so I, I think um, the, the whole conversation around purpose is often a lot bigger than immediate sales. You know, it's interesting because I get asked this question a lot like, well, how are you guys measuring sales? Because isn't that the first thing a CEO or a CMO asks? And actually that that is not. It, 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 typically CEOs in particular often don't have any questions about the return on purpose because they can very clearly see how it relates to getting employees motivated, getting all of their stakeholders on the same page. Um, and frankly, often is a platform for them out in the world. So they see it as valuable to to for uh, you know uh, from the get go. Having said that, um, there's I think a growing body of data that is showing um, there's several studies, and that people are interested in it. Maybe in the the data that um, I provide for you, if you're going to send an email out, there are two or three studies that have come out recently that are showing a very strong connection between purpose and um, really overall company value, which I think makes sense. Things like um, one of the studies from Barra Brand Management, they did a, a, a um, comparison of high-purpose companies and low-purpose companies uh, in terms of um, average uh, valuation multiples over um, over a period of time. And they found that high-purpose brands were over four times high the uh, uh, um, earnings before income tax than low-purpose brands, just as an example. Earnings, uh, stock price uh, analyses have, have been done that show high-purpose brands doing better than low-purpose brands. Um, and I think in some ways it's not surprising when you think just, for example, that uh, it's, it's been shown over and over again that high-purpose companies have much more motivated employees. That leads to higher productivity. So it's probably not surprising that they're doing better financially. So. Um, anyway, roundabout an uh, um, uh, uh, answer to your question, but um, first of all, as I said, I think that um, higher purpose seems to be self-evidently important to a lot of C-suite leaders, but despite that, um, I think more than just the metric of brand, purpose seems to be more and more associated with overall company, um, but both stock price and sales. Yeah, and, and that's why you know companies who see studies in the Harvard um, Business Review uh, about diversity, the more diverse your uh, your organization is, the higher the rate of return uh, for the business and more sales, more everything is better. Yeah. So these things uh, correlate uh, together. You write about the importance of stakeholders. How do you define a stakeholder and engage them in a meaningful way? Yeah, so we think about stakeholder as like a, a, a party that has an interest in a company and can either affect or sort of be affected by the business. So historically, we thought of stakeholders as you know investors, employees, customers and prospects, suppliers. So that's how we thought about stakeholders, um, I think, historically. Increasingly, though, I think what's changed is that people uh, within companies and, and really the general public is also thinking uh, that a stakeholder of corporations is basically society at large, that that um, you know companies have a duty not just to serve 
um, you know, employees or, or, or shareholders, but, but the public generally, just because companies are taking up resources. So if they're here, they need to be serving the greater good for, for everybody, not just their sort of uh, inside stakeholders. Um, so uh, how do you engage them in a meaningful way? I think that's what our book is all about, activating purpose with a movement. The thing that's a little bit different between about that than say traditional uh, positioning of a company or a brand uh, is that activating purpose with a movement really applies to everybody, all the stakeholders, you know, inside the company and outside, including society. So it's kind of a uh, reaches the, the larger definition of stakeholder, not just the kind of uh, old fashioned de- definition of stakeholder. Yeah. And there's many more stakeholders now than people ever thought before, or at least yeah. consider them. Um, a question from the audience. Could a money generating movement also matter for showing purpose of a company or is it must be selfies, selfless? A money generating movement. Um. Yeah, I, I, we tend to think of a movement as serving the uh, for 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 a, a company, a commercial company, a brand as something that needs to serve both the interest of your audience and the brand together. Um, like I talked about with um, SunTrust um, financial, this movement for uh, on up call for a uh, movement for against financial stress and for financial confidence. So that's sort of a, a byproduct was that the bank made money. But the reason people cared about it wasn't because the bank was making money. The reason people cared about it was, was that, that they really felt that the bank cared that they become financially confident. So um, we tend to not think about the movements we create for companies as like uh, the movement itself is to, to make the cash register ring. The movement is to get people to care, which is the thing that is so hard. Out uh, And a byproduct of caring is that you sell things better. So I hope, hope that uh, makes sense. Yeah, no, I think it is. Uh, why don't many companies don't know the why of their existence? And what is meant by people don't buy what you're doing, but buy why you do it? What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, I, you know, I, I, the thesis I've been putting out there uh, since the beginning of the interview today is that actually many people today do have a why, many companies do. The problem is they don't know what to do with it. Uh, it's, it seems like it's easier to come up with, with a why than a lot of people thought. It, it's, it's activating it. Uh, and to your question, uh, why, uh, what, what is meant by people don't buy what you're doing, they buy why you do it. I guess the way that I think about it is that what you do as a company is often functional and it can be matched by a competitor. Uh, why you do it uh, is what can connect with people emotionally and kind of make you stand apart as a company. So I think for that reason, why you buy something is just more emotionally res- resonant than just kind of what you do and what you make on the factory floor. Uh, could you please explain the concept of purpose washing and why, should, why companies should maybe avoid doing that? Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a big topic. And, you know, we, we've been talking a little bit, Mark, uh, about um, how do you activate purpose authentically? So purpose washing is when you fail to uh, activate it authentically. You activate it 
in an ingenuine way or in an in, inauthentic way. It's, uh, it's when your company is seen as just giving lip service to higher purpose or acting on it in a disingenuous way. Um, you know, some examples, um, you know, I, I think the, the poster child example that I'm sure everybody uh, here has heard, uh, heard of or, or saw was a couple of years ago, three, I think 2018, so I guess three years ago, uh, Pepsi came out with an ad campaign featuring Kendall Jenner. And um, they were trying to sell soda pop, but for some reason, the Kendall was attending some sort of a racial equality um, uh, rally and was getting involved in racial equality, although you couldn't it wasn't really sure, clear what was going on. At any rate, they just really got nailed over that. Pepsi did for purpose washing because um, it just, it seemed like it came out of the blue. Pepsi never talked about this before. What does this have to do with soda pop? What does this have to do with Kendall Jenner? It just felt like they were co-opting something that was trendy and in the news to try to get attention. Now, was that really their intention? I, I doubt it. I'm sure somebody on the team thought it was a good idea and that they were doing a good thing. But um, unfortunately, it just didn't come across that way. So um, so I think that's the issue with purpose washing. And, uh, you know, it's obviously a, a backlash you want to avoid. Yeah, no, no question about it. Um, you list the top seven brands and you mentioned what they all have in common. Can you tell us uh, what is that and what can we learn from that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, so this was the top seven brands from the Purpose Power Index. So this was the big research study that we did. Um, so, um, and, and among the top seven brands, and th th this was... Uh, this was in 2019 um, that we first did it. There were brands, as I said, like um, Seventh Generation, uh, REI, um, and uh, Method uh, were 2019 winners. In 2021, we had a bit of a change up. We had a lot of uh, sort of newer, more interesting companies that moved into the top. Um, SpaceX was one of actually one of the top ones. You know, they're trying to take us, the mankind, to another planet. That was a biggie. Um, I think a couple of the big pharmaceutical companies that had been working uh, in the pandemic actually rose up to the top. So anyway, so we identified brands that were at the top, uh, both in 2019 and 2021. Um, and I think that there were um, uh, five sort of important things that those brands were doing well. So, you know, there's sort of a, a traditional five P's of marketing which were like uh, price, product, placement, positioning, you know, et cetera. I think what we found uh, among the things that those top uh, brands were doing well, uh, we call it the, the five P's of purpose. Uh, and they are uh, product, that the, the products and services you make are purposeful. Uh, one we call progress, and that's that the innovation work you do is very purposeful. Um, the third one is planet, that you're doing things to support sustainability and uh, the future of the planet. Uh, the fourth is people, and that is that you are doing things to advocate for communities and for your employees. And the last one we call positive change, and that's that you're doing something um, in terms of societal advocacy, uh, doing something to kind of make society better. So again, uh, product, progress, planet, people, and positive change. And what's interesting is that we found from our data that that was the order of importance. 
that the first and foremost, if people don't see that your products and services are doing something in support of your higher purpose, that, um, that, 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 that's an issue. And it's interesting, positive change and, and uh, social activism, while it was important, it was actually the least important of the, of the five. So anyway, that, those are the five things that the top performers seem to have in common. What can business learn from Black Lives Matter and the Occupy Wall Street movement? You mentioned those in the book. And what's the takeaway for businesses? Yeah, I think those are two examples of movements um, that represent sort of sort of two ends of the spectrum. I mean, in my view, Occupy was just arguably not successful, and Black Lives Matter has been more successful. And uh, so I just I feel that what we can learn from them is just sort of kind of maybe some things to do and not to do based on their success. I mean, for me, and again, this is my opinion, people on, may, may, that are listening may not agree, but my, my opinion based on my study of it, and you know, we write about this in the book, uh, is that Occupy's undoing was that it was unfocused. Uh, it seemed to be against, against something, against corporate greed, but what was it really for? I mean, I just, I'm not sure that people ever really knew exactly what it was the movement was really genuinely trying to do. Um, people uh, who were in support of the movement didn't really know what they were supposed to do to, what is the goal and where are we supposed to do to support it? So you just had a bunch of people showing up at, uh, uh, you know, outside of, uh, uh, in parks here in New York. But um, again, it was just a little vague as to what they were trying to do. I think our, our concept of movement thinking could have helped focus them a lot, but we we were not called on to advise them. So anyway, that was Occupy. Black Lives Matter is a different story. Um, I think it worked better because we know what they're opposing uh, and we know what they're trying to, to, to bring about, which is racial equality. Um, and because the organization of the group, it was really sort of spontaneous and decentralized, uh, they weren't just getting people onto the street. People were getting themselves on the street. Black Lives Matter could just publicize that they were holding a rally and it was in and around maybe something that had happened in the news. You got people showing up, you got people rallying and you had people behind it wearing the t-shirts. Uh, and before you know it, the notion of racial equality, you find that, you know, 65% of people are saying, I support the mission of Black Lives Matter, and a lot of minds are changed. So it was just a lot more focused uh, in who they were for, who they were against, the kind of stand they were going to take. You know, all the pre- principles that I talked about around movement thinking were just so much clearer for Black Lives Matter than they were for Occupy. Yeah, I also think that people with Black Lives Matter, that built up over decades and it just blew um, blew up but with uh, occupy wall street first of all they had a lot of infighting among the leaders themselves but when the stock market is doing really well uh nobody really cares about occupying wall street but if the market's in free fall then uh even the people in suits are joining them in occupying wall street so i guess it I all know, depends which is, which is crazy just because uh just because the stock market's doing better doesn't mean that uh income inequality is really any better it's probably not but um but you're right I, and i think that's just another testament to the fact that occupy could have uh, done a much better job yeah i mean look even now you know um the democrats are trying to do some positive things socially and people don't really want to see it because they're worried about that the stock market, which everybody has, uh, you know, a dog in that hunt, uh, right. is worried that 
What if that changes the market? What about my retirement? What about my kid's college education? I don't know if I want to tip that uh, pot over. So right, it's exactly. interesting. Question from the audience is really has kind of little to do with the subject um, per se, but they'd still like it answered. This will be the most trivial question asked all day, but growing up in Cincinnati and using the word pop to describe carbonated sugar beverages, where did you grow up? Oh, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, so I'm a Southern boy. And that's what they say um, down there, yeah. No, 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 especially if you're um, like, um, uh, uh, I, I'm not from the trailer park, but I'm from near the trailer park. Uh -huh. So down there, everybody calls everything a Coke. <laughs> Whether it's oh, Pepsi Coke. or a, a Dr. Pepper. <laughs> Coke has dominated for over 100 years. I guess 150 years. So that's why they're all doing it, right? Yeah, but here in New York, where I live now, we call it soda. So uh, you wrote about how taking a bold action like Dick's Sporting Goods, deciding not to sell assault rapers after Sandy Hook. Why don't you think they got more credit and could they have done something differently? Yeah, I, I well, thought it was strong on their side. I thought it was, you know, kind of like a right thing to do. Yeah, well, in our research, the Purpose Power Index, you know, we we asked uh, Dick Dick Sporting Goods was one of the brands we asked about, and they got real relatively with the general public relatively low scores on being a, a purpose driven company. And this was among people who were aware of them as a brand. Uh, and the reason why is that it, it appeared from our data that people just weren't aware that they had done it. Um, so I, I think that um, because. Um, the uh, that that act of theirs to get rid of assault rifles may have appeared in some high-profile publications like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, uh, which the average person in America does not read. <laughs> that uh, maybe the uh, the leaders of the company assumed that everybody knew about it, but um, it did, did not. We we asked in our in our research not only uh, you know is your is your company seen as purpose-driven, but we asked uh, about um, for each company, were they associated with a whole long list of things from like women's rights through gun gun um, gun issues through you know a, a list of twenty or thirty different things? And Dix wasn't really associated. Um, pe people, uh, I, as I said, I just don't think that they were aware that the brand had done it. Back in the 80s and 90s, uh, in the early 90s, uh, there were tons of classes on ethics because that's when I got my master's in management. We're all the rage at all the top tier business schools. Should schools be teaching tomorrow's leaders about the importance of purpose? And do you think it will happen organically? And what skills will future leaders need to succeed in the brand wars? Yeah, I, I do. It is already happening organically. And, and uh, Mark, I know you you uh, mentioned that you've taught, I think, at some some pretty well-known places. And I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm already getting, uh, and my business partner, Scott, is getting requests from folks. I think Scott's teaching at Harvard, um, uh, I think, in the next month or so about some of these topics. So it's already happening organically. And, and um, I think it's not only because of um, purpose and this kind of thing being in the news, but uh, to what we discussed earlier, I think some of the younger folks who are in business school, they want to, to learn about this. And uh, I really think that it's really gonna be a shift from this whole thing from just about shareholders to stakeholders. When I was in business school, it was, you know, it was really all about shareholder value. And I think switching it to stakeholder value uh, and having business school students think a lot more broadly about the purpose of an enterprise and the purpose of a brand. Um, I, I think it's, as I said, it's already happening organically. And to the second half of your question, um, 
So uh, what skills will future leaders need to su succeed in the brand wars? Um, I'll just off the top of my head, um, maybe just give you a few thoughts. It's not exhaustive, but um, I think that folks are going to have to, uh, future leaders are going to have to start thinking about um, I, I think we we tend to focus on customers and what's important to customers, and and which is really important. But I think we're going to have to start thinking about cultural and societal insight as well, um, just because our customers and our employees care about it. I think um, future leaders are going to have to have the superpower of self awareness. Um, what do we as a company and a brand have per genuine permission to say and do versus what do we want to say and do? Um, just because uh, of the whole authenticity and purpose washing thing that we've been talking about. Uh, a third one and uh, is uh, transparency, uh, a willingness to be radically honest, even about your shortcomings shortcomings, which is, I think, a skill that a lot of leaders weren't necessarily given. <laughs> it, it's often been about how do you hide your shortcomings, but in, in the great world of, of radical transparency, I think you're going to have to be. And then the last one, I think particularly for you, if you're a marketer, um, I think it's willingness to be a change agent as opposed to just being a sales agent. Uh, because I, I think, as again, as I've been saying, I think that's what employees want from their companies and their brands. And I, I think it's what uh, customers want and it's what society in general is uh, is expecting as well. Yeah, it's funny. I think this whole movement started back in the 60s when people started saying, you know what, I just don't want to work just to make money. I really want to uh, have an impact in a positive way. I mean, we yeah. kind of saw that in Mad Men, right? That series Mad Men, where... Right. Don Draper wakes up and goes, oh, this is bullshit. I don't want to be doing this. Uh, and I feel like I really need to do something more than just sell sugar water. Yeah, but I think we went on a uh, different jag, particularly during the 80s, if you'll remember the 80s, yeah, where sure. it was all about greed is good. And yeah. that kind of hung over into the dot-com com revolution of the 90s. And I think we've kind of come back full circle to that, looking for a reason to want to get up and go to work every day. Uh, beyond just, you know, collecting a paycheck. And I hear that all the time from younger people when I would teach them in school. Chip, yeah. thank you so much. The book is absolutely terrific. I hope a lot of people will get it. And we're going to send them the link to the book so they can purchase the book as well. I appreciate Fantastic. you taking the time uh, to speak with us. And uh, hopefully you guys will write another book and I'll have you back. Okay, well, well I, I hope so. It's been a pleasure being here. So thanks so much for having me, Mark. Have a great rest of your day. Everybody have a great weekend. Look forward to seeing you next Friday. And uh, please be safe. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.